Hi, I'm Mark from Minneapolis. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio said it best not too long ago when she turned to me and she said, you know, Dana, you might not be the smartest guy in the world. You might not be the best looking guy in the world. You might not be the funniest guy in the world. That's all I wanted to say. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is uh, comedian Dana Gould. He's a stand-up comic and has been for many years, as well as a writer for both uh, small and large screen, most notably for uh, six years. He was a writer and producer on The Simpsons. See, Stacey's uh, writing things for the big screen. His brand new uh, stand-up comedy CD and DVD is called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. It marks his return to the stage, or at least to the stage, is a 45-minute big star act after uh, after he largely left stand-up comedy for writing for uh, five or eight years. Dana, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you. Hello, youth. <laughs> Don't worry. This is a public radio show. We can call it The Sound of Young America, That's but at true. the end of the day, you're looking at 53-year-olds. Since this is a public radio show, let me change my voice. Okay, good. Hello. <laughs> Spoken like a man who has done a lot of both commercial and public radio. Yes. Um, you grew up in the Northeast in a uh, big, it sounded like a really intense family. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I compare my family to the Manson family, and the only thing I can think is, at least the Mansons had a ranch. <laughs> <laughs> my... Um, Reading, reading you talking about your family. My my stepmother is from Belfast and grew up in a family of eight or ten with a single mother. And to wow. her, to her, what's funny is a story about like two of her funniest moments in her life are the time her sister tried to grab her bacon and she stabbed her in the hand with a fork, <laughs> um, and also the time. The time when someone tried to uh, uh, assault her and she kicked them down a flight of stairs yeah, and they were in the hospital for woman, six months. She's a woman after my own heart. I know exactly how she feels. I, I don't know what it is if it's, you know, not having sort of the uh, uh, idyllic life that makes those things funny. But yeah, like the, nothing makes my brother and I laugh harder than when we talk about the time I threw scissors at him. <laughs> Did you get him? <laughs> no, I didn't. But then, uh, no, I threw scissors at him. He shot me with a BB gun, and then I slammed his fingers in the door. <laughs> Wait, are you saying this is is this, this three was, discreet no, this, events? Yes, over... this was not one Tom and Jerry. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would really be an accomplishment yeah. if you could string those <laughs> yeah. together. Yeah, that would be something else. Because maybe he's on the porch with the BB gun. No, the BB gun, the BB, I remember the BB gun specifically because it was, uh, he, <laughs> he was pointing the BB gun at me. Then it was one of those things where like a, 
like a gremlin made him pull the trigger. Like he really didn't want to pull the trigger, <laughs> and his innate nature just pull the trigger. And he, 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 like he could see in horror after he pulled the trigger. I looked at him like you shot me, and he just dr- screamed, "Don't tell Dad!" and dropped the gun and ran. You were the you're the youngest uh, you're the youngest brother. You have one I have sister a younger, younger sister than you. Really did do your work. But you have four, right? Am I remembering four correctly? Brothers. Four older brothers. So yes. that's like a situation that's set up for you specifically to be tortured. Well, you know, uh, as they say, a certain something rolls downhill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look at it; it's paid for itself. <laughs> Were you like your older brothers or different from your I older could not brothers? have been less like my older brothers. I have, they're all physically bigger than me. They were all athletes and uh, like you know now two of them are in law enforcement. Two of them are uh, work for like the phone company that have like guy jobs. Um, they all were star athletes. They all were hunters. Um, and I was quite literally, my nickname was the milkman's kid. They had no idea where I came from. The only reason I know I'm not, and this is like just one of life's weirder ironies is I look exactly like my father. I am the spitting image of my father and none of them look like my father, but they all behave like him. You know, it's like, I'm like, if my dad went to Comic-Con, my dad is a very interesting guy. He was born in the Depression. He was born in the uh, early 1930s. And a lot of guys from that generation are really bigoted. But to his credit, he doesn't restrict his racial intolerance to the big three or four. He'll spread it out. <laughs> You'll hear him in the other room watching the news, coming up with racial hatreds you didn't even know were racial hatreds. <laughs> oh, Jesus, there go the Belgians again. They're at it. They're worse than the ruling class of Algeria. I got no time for those <laughs> You know, your average Algerian, that's like two Albanians with a hangover. I don't got time for that. Not in this neighborhood. Not while I'm alive. What was it like to be in this really intense family and be the odd man out? Um, well, it was, uh, again, it's like, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I have a terrible, uh, my left eye is crappy. Um but you're not afraid to say that. I'm not afraid to say that. Chicks, the sympathy chicks I get on having a Bucci eye, uh, it's unbelievable. Um, it's only when they want to go to a 3D movie that I that I fade out. Um, but uh, I've never That's known. That's what a, chicks like to yeah, do these like, days on hot hey, dates. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. You want to go see Coraline? You yeah. know I do. <laughs> I don't know. Are we seeing it in real D? <laughs> how many Ds? <laughs> But but it's all I've ever known. So you know, it's, at the time it was all I've ever I've ever known. And as I have a this, if you read, if you did do the research, you seem to have done. As you also know, I am a Planet of the Apes freak. And I, when I was growing up, Planet of the Apes was to me what baseball is to children. Normally, <laughs> it was that it was that omnipresent in my life and consciousness. And I had a shrink late in life go well, of course, because. You, that you know, Charlton Heston was trapped in this world that he knew was wrong, and it, there were these big physical beasts that were pushing him around all the time, and that's why you related to it. And it was like one of the first times I was going, eh, or, or maybe not. <laughs> it was also gorillas in leather coats shooting at Moses. I mean, how is that not cool? <laughs> what was it? Yeah. You really, to say that you're a, a Planet of the Apes Monkeys, enthusiast. Monkeys, apes dressed like Fonzie shooting Moses dressed like Tarzan. <laughs> 
I once went to a, a swanky Hollywood affair at your house, and I typed in the address into the internet to get directions out of the oh, internet. Yeah. Well, this is not intentional, though. And it and it came and it came up uh, and it came up as the celebrity address uh, for getting autographs from the late Roddy McDowell. Yes. Um, now th- I, I have a hard time believing that that was unintentional. Dana. Yes. If you, re- there's a story online that you can read called ranch house of the apes. That uh-huh. I wrote. That's, it was a, it was a blog item and it was an article in a magazine. Uh, literally my wife and I were looking for a house, uh, planet of the apes. Also my father-in-law's favorite movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, it just gets crazier. Uh, so we were looking for a house. We did not have children yet, but we knew we were going to get children. Uh, so the house was too big for us at the time, but we thought, well, it, it won't be too big for us in five years. And then the guy said, yes. And it used to be the actor Roddy McDowell's house. And my wife just looked at me and was like, oh, <laughs> that, that tore it. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Did you all, by that point, did you already have the, uh... we were, we were, the ball was rolling around the rim. Uh-huh. That clearly tipped it in. Okay, you know, but but it was not. I did not seek out Roddy McDowell's house. Had you by that point taken possession of the uh, the lawgiver statue? Yeah, no, sir. <laughs> so that was this is a a gargantuan like what is it six eight feet in your backyard? There's a it's it's it's, it's a, like an it's, Easter Island. Uh, I like to say figure from the presumably from the Planet of the Apes. It is from the movie. It was uh, if you watch the original movie with Charlton Heston, there's this which I like, can't recommend. Really? Well, wow. I mean, maybe if you saw it as a ten year old. No, it's great. It's okay. Still, I still. When was okay. the last time you saw it? Uh, I was. Yeah, I was okay. like. Yeah, it was. On no, it. I think it holds up. We'll have this okay. conversation now. <laughs> It's important. It's good to take a stand. Now, yeah. Now it's like you just said to Ronald Reagan, supply side economics doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, uh, it's like there are eight, it's like the ape god, and it's it's an it's an omnipresent statue in the movie and in and your life. I, and I I know the guy that restored it, and they struck a mold, and I have one from that mold, and it is in my yard, and I like to describe it as being of a size. <laughs> I think monumental is a reasonable. If I was a single, it does have its own spotlight. It does Dana. have its own spotlight, and I would say this: were I a single gentleman, I would refer to that as the deal closer. <laughs> <laughs> to which, to which the repost would probably be with whom? <laughs> yeah, any woman in full ape makeup. <laughs> Um, I, you know, you you brought up your family. I think there's, there's any woman a... that looks like comic book guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you uh, your stand up comedy career has has had a really interesting trajectory. You started in the comedy boom at a time when uh, I I read you describing it as anyone who could form complete English sentences. Yeah, your average town. It was it was a really interesting thing. I I started off. I wanted to be a comedian since I was about fourteen years old. And um, and it, I was 14 years old in 1978, which was like the peak of the original Saturday Night Live, and Steve Martin was huge, and it was just it was SCTV, you know, it was like everything, the the golden, the heyday of of comedy. I was the I was the perfect age for it, and I really loved uh, George Carlin was one of my uh, early heroes, and when I was 16. Uh, my mom, uh, like took me to see him a couple of times, you know, like to that end, it was, they were pretty cool. My first open mic was a week out of high school. I was 17. Then I went to college, did it at college at UMass. And so by the time I was out, it was 84, 85, 
four. And it was at that time where like every city had two or three comedy clubs. Boston had four or five at the time. So I was, I was young. I had a lot of natural ability on stage for whatever reason. I had a car. I did not drink or do cocaine. <laughs> no, no, this really has a big thing to do with it. At the time, the Boston comedy scene and the Boston music scene as well was a river of cocaine. It was like, <laughs> it was like if you've ever seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, if you, if you know the blizzard at the end of the show where Santa doesn't think he can make it, the blizzard of cocaine, it was worse. <laughs> the, um, because I had a car, I could drive comedians to gigs, like out-of-town gigs, and they didn't have to give me any of their blow. So I worked all the time. And I would go, on, like, all right, you'll MC, and then we'll go to, you know, we're going to drive to Stockbridge. And you'll drive these guys. And, and, and it was great. And I developed. I had so much stage time at, a, at that crucial age. Uh, it, it really helped. And because I didn't do coke, I I owned things, <laughs> as, they, as they as my uh, as my uh, friend Bob Lazarus used to say. I don't do coke because I want to own things. But you know, I didn't become a good writer for like another ten years because I you know you don't know who you are when you're twenty, so you're not going to be very you're not going to be a very good comic. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Dana Gould. He's just released a new comedy special on CD and DVD. It's called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. When I was a child, I was taught, when you died, you have to stand in front of all of your relatives that live in heaven and shout out every bad thing you did or thought. I was taught that by adults. And now I'm older and I realize that's not what happens. Now I'm older and I realize what happens is... When you die, you have to stand in front of all the children who died of starvation while you were alive and read them your eBay purchases. <laughs> 50 cents would have fed my family for a week. Yeah, for uh, 37 bucks, I got the Hot Wheels carrying case, the orange wheel with the handle. It uh, didn't have cars. I think I kept like rubber bands in it. I don't even know where it is. I mean, if you talk to a comedian in their uh, in their 30s and they and you ask them like who of their peers, who of the people who were just a little bit ahead of them, did they admire? Who do they want to be like? Um, especially in what's uh, now called the alternative comedy world, they often say Dana Gould. And I wonder at what point you were you were really on the forefront of that you know differentiation yeah. or the idea that there was something that that, that comedy could have. Uh, various particular venues or voices, just like rock music could, for example. When did you when did you realize that you were doing something that maybe was a little bit different from uh, what you know oh, yeah, Jay yeah. Leno was doing? Right. Um, well, uh, that's really nice. Um, I I think a lot of that is because I started off so young and was able to work so much. It's it's, it's those people really are my peers. Like we have a mutual friend, Patton Oswalt, who. Who, although like and to that and like I was an established comic when Patton was coming up, but Patton is really my peer. I mean, we have the same cultural references, we have the same, we're at the same age, or you know, a little, you know, we go through the same things. But I just started earlier and was able to move along faster because of a very specific set of circumstances. Um, when we moved to, uh, I moved to L.A. I moved to San Francisco and then I moved to L.A. And I was living in L.A. and uh, 
Janine Garofalo, who I knew from Boston, had was living down here, and we met some other. We met uh, Kathy Griffin, who at the time was in in the Groundlings, and and it was just this little group of people. And, and the thing that we noticed was, like, I would go to. I remember very specifically in 1989 going to see Elvis Costello and the Rude Five was his backup band at the time. It was right after he fired the attractions at the Universal Amphitheater. And I was looking around and thinking, why aren't these people in comedy clubs? Look at all of these people that are like we are. And none of them go to comedy clubs because, as you said, by that time they were driven out by the the people in you know sport coast with the yeah, sleeves the, the evening at the improv of it all so it was really janine i mean i credit janine she was really the one that said you know let's just put a show in a place where those people are and and see if they come and then and then and then we thought well let's make it interesting you know and so we we kind of came up with this rule where you couldn't do your act like you had to do something that you'd never done before on stage. You had to like talk about stuff that happened that week and we weren't charging. So, so to that, it was like, it was okay. I don't, I don't think you should charge people to watch you rehearse. Um, so, uh, and that was sort of the start of it, a, a period that I think back to is just a, a blur of people in suede coats writing on their hands. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, but, but, but that became like for better or worse, like the alternative scene. It's the sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Dana Gould. His brand new CD special DVD is called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. We'll have more with Dana in just a minute when we come back. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Are you an artist or designer? Try your luck at the second annual Maximum Fun Drive t-shirt contest. Every year for our annual pledge drive, it's coming up in May by the way, we create a limited edition Maximum Fun shirt for donors and every year that shirt is designed by a listener just like you. Here's how it works. Create a design on any color American Apparel t-shirt and send a web-friendly image file to our intern, brian at MaximumFun.org. Between now and Tax Day, April 15th, Brian will be posting designs in a special thread on our forum. He'll choose 10 semifinalists, and forum members will vote to determine our five finalists. Then a blue ribbon super panel of t-shirt experts will vote on the finalists and choose our winner, which will be produced for our hundreds of Maximum Fund donors. Besides the satisfaction of knowing that he or she has made the world a better place, all the finalists and the eventual winner will get prizes from MaximumFun.org. The overall winner will even get $100 cash American in the bank. You have until April 15th. Ladies and gentlemen, start your drafting pads. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dana Gould, is the father of alternative comedy. He's also a noted comedy writer. His brand new CD and DVD is called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. You were very successful as a stand-up comic in uh, the 90s, but you transitioned out of uh, stand-up comedy for the most part. I mean, you certainly you never left it completely. Right. But um, I stopped doing it as a uh, as a as your main gig. Yeah. Um, to become a writer and specifically as and especially to become a writer on The Simpsons. Why does God always need money? It's a lot of little stuff. God has to pay all the elves in his workshop. Plus, he's got all those planets to support. You see that ring he gave Saturn? 
writing on The Simpsons is often seen as a job for a young comedy writing genius, somebody from the Harvard Lampoon who like worked for a year well, or two certainly on a David a lot of Letterman. That. <laughs> somebody who worked for a year or two on David Letterman, and then right. and then they go to The Simpsons, and then they you know cash yeah. their check that they worked on The Simpsons yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have stayed at the show. That, you know, I, I might not have stayed as a writer if if I was working on, you know, hanging with dad. <laughs> you know, but I was, you know, I was, people think you're a genius if you work on The Simpsons. So I, I had cred, you know, I was still the cool guy. Um, it doesn't matter that, you know, you spent four hours that day thinking of a funny name for a store. <laughs> you know that was one day I remember it was an, we were doing an episode of <laughs> set in Mark Twain time it was we called it and it was like what's a good name for Bed Bath and Beyond what's the name of the store four hours of just like no that's not it do you remember it I absolutely well? remember it that day seared into my brain like the Mighty Dog brand <laughs> and that can of food Pelts Pone and Beyond. <laughs> But we came up with that about 30 minutes in, and it was still another three and a half hours to make sure it worked. Um, it takes almost nine months to figure out how to write on the show. And, and the way I described it is like you come up with a joke, and then you use the punchline of that joke as the setup to your real joke. You know, it's every it's very meta. It, it, it's, it's very... Uh, um, like, and here's an example, when it, when it sort of dawned on me. Homer is uh, won a uh, free burial for his dad, even though his dad was alive, but they were going to set everything up. And uh, and we thought it would be funny if they played it like a car dealer. And the, and the guy just, um, you know, Homer thought a casket was too expensive, so the guy goes, well, if you want, you can just... You can just uh, you know, lie him out of the woods and wait for the wolves to carry him away, and walks away, and the guys are going... 1001, 1002, 1003, and then Homer would come back. And then what Homer's it was, I'll take your wolf offer, but I'd like to move it one more. <laughs> and that's really what it is. It's like the thing that you think is the joke is not the joke. It's a setup to the real joke. Um, and that took a long time to figure out. And I was saying this to somebody the other day. The worst feeling in the world is sitting down with your script and having to write the first joke of your Simpson script. That is just horrible. That That's still, I my stomach would tighten thinking of that is that because you're you're thinking of how it's going to be met on a committee yeah. of your most brilliant peers yeah, absolutely and it's yeah it's like you know 16 of the smartest people you know and it's the first joke out of the gate and it's yeah that was always just gruesome what about the challenge of uh writing for the simpsons you started writing for the simpsons in what 2000 it's about about 2000 yeah the, yeah the yeah the april show, of 2000 the show had been i know i was there on 9 11 <laughs> This show had been running for one of the few instances of the 9/11 followed by giggles. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, if you play that back, 9/11. <laughs> you and I both spend a lot of time talking to comedians, and there's a surprisingly high instance of 9/11 followed. Well, by the giggles. the staff of The Simpsons went to my. Uh, this is a very strange story. Um, my wife and I had gone on vacation to Bora Bora, and it was I'd never been to a place that beautiful before. And we landed, and I was like. I'm going to be so relaxed for a year. That vacation was amazing. This is the most relaxed day of my life, September 10th, 2001. <laughs> and like literally like the next day I was going to, you know, go into work and get the phone. Turn on the TV. Some people are already on their way to work. What happened was most of the writing staff ended up at my house. I was just like, we're here. We had to come on over. And we were all watching it at my house. 
And I went to, it was, it was like one of those, my wife is such an innate host. It's like, everyone's coming over. We don't have any food. Go to Ralph's, which is the grocery store here in Los Angeles. So I go to Ralph's. It's like the Omega Man at Ralph. There's no one in the store. This is like, you know, noon on 9-11. You know, the world is officially flipping out. And you come to realize that you're hosting a September 11th party. I'm September and I go to Ralph, and I buy a bunch of hot dogs and potato chips and just food to eat. And I, uh, this is an, in an empty grocery store. And as I check out, the, the, the bag boy goes... Oh man, you're having a party, <laughs> like, but not like, not like what is wrong with you? And I really do think like in retrospect, the FBI was like, who is that? Why is that guy buying hot dogs and potato chips? Why, why is he having a cookout today? You should have been evaluating the foods in the aisles for their somberness. <laughs> I like some, I like a, uh, 12 grief dogs. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but we, no, we were, you know, I, that's also that schadenfreude thing of there were absolutely 9-11 jokes going on in my house that day. Um, the question that we, the question that I was. None of which I will say on the air, but several, several beauties I'll tell you when we're done. (laughs) (laughs) The question that I was getting to is that the Simpsons had 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 a healthy run, had had basically, by the time you got on there, it had had two full sitcom runs. Yes, and as I was there yesterday, and I said to Matt Selman, when the hell are you going off the air? (laughs) And and I was there from 13 to 20. I can't imagine with the staff of brilliant people that always is working on The Simpsons that you were scared that you uh, wouldn't have enough funny stuff happening in a given show. Oh, no, you're absolutely constantly terrified. (laughs) No, no, that's, that's not true. You are, that is the thing that keeps everybody going, is that you don't want to be the guy that, was there when it started to stink. What about the other part of it, which is that sort of part of the premise of The Simpsons is that it contains a fair amount of sincere emotion. Yes. Um, and That's forced on us. Once you... <laughs> That's forced on us by Jim Brooks. <laughs> once you... But once you... W- w- the Simpsons also, you know, has, has made a habit of not repeating itself. So once you've wrung the emotion out of, like, the demon jockeys that live underground <laughs> underneath the horse racing track, that's a very interesting episode for you to point out. Go then, ahead and I'll tell you. Okay, well, go ahead and tell no, me no, why. Like, where, where do you then? Then is it scary to know that you have to find the that you have to find grounding and um, actual feelings um, of family and the relationships between these characters that people know really well? The show goes in cycles, you know, and uh, that the jockeys was was one and uh the episode where uh for something happened it was the season premiere of i think 13 or 14 and uh and uh, homer's st- st- homer's stomach wall was removed by a badger there was a, ba- <laughs> there was a badger in the doghouse and homer went in to get it and came out with like a stomach exposed. okay when you said that i presume that this badger was doing some kind of medical procedure <laughs> no, and that was, was a little more absurd house. than i imagined it was in the doghouse <laughs> And, and that was when, like, Jim Brooks is like, like, hey, you're you're off track. You've got to get back on the on the thing. And it, it, it's, you know, it's and then you you go back and then you work. It's like the Beatles. It's like you start off like doing my Bonnie, <laughs> you know, and then you go all the way to I'm the walrus and then you throw all that Baroque stuff away and then you go back to get back. 
And then had they stayed together, they would have gone all the way back. <laughs> it's just this, it's this creative cycle. Um, and, uh, so that is really funny. I like the, the lunacy stuff. I, I just, I can see uh, it in your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I like that to me, uh, was the, was the great, uh, the great stuff. Now for our main event, the rubber duck race. The first duck to cross the finish line wins this home computer. Oh, that's the new Femac. The computer designed just for women. The You've Got Mail voice is Susan Sarandon. You've got mail, unlike the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. Get informed. My guest is writer and comedian Dana Gould. Here's a clip from his new CD, let me put my thoughts in you. I have no pickup lines left. I mean, I don't need them. Everything's fine. But even if I did, I'm so trained as a husband, I got nothing. If my wife left me tomorrow, I would just be stumbling up to women in bars. So, uh, I noticed you sitting there by yourself, and, uh, you know thought you might have a list of chores and errands you wanted me to do. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. thought I'd maybe take out the convertible, swing by your place, drive your mom to Target. <laughs> you like? You like? Given that you had had this very successful writing career on The Simpsons and have been working as a writer extensively since you left The Simpsons, have had no, um, there's been no break in opportunities for Dana Gould that that I see as an outsider. And um, and I and I what I don't talk about is I do a lot of uh, raking. I have a great raking <laughs> business. <laughs> Sure, I mean you you got the you have a broad variety of side businesses. I have, if you, you if sell you like, siding, for I example. Siding. Speaking of sides, I sell siding. I uh, I rake leaves. So why why did you go why go back to doing stand up comedy in earnest with the idea of developing a comedy special out of it and taping it, making a DVD, making a CD, the things that uh, the people who feel antsy if they're not on stage in right. a given night do. Uh, competitive zeal. <laughs> You know, uh, when the the one thing about The Simpsons, the drag about when I worked on The Simpsons was it it dictates your life. You know, you got to be there at 10 and you're going to go home when, you know, you're told you can go home. And uh, that's that's five days a week, 50 weeks a year. Uh, and that's for somebody whose life used to be I worked an hour a night. <laughs> that, that's a bit of an adjustment um it's not unusual to 99.99 percent of of people listening to this broadcast but it it is, is weird for the creative types and uh so i i wasn't able to do stand-up as much but it is like i don't golf i don't surf i don't play sports that's what i like to do and because my kids are now of an age and I'm at a different point in my life, I had things to say that I didn't have to say before. I wasn't just repeating myself. Um, that I just sort of developed this big chunk of of material, I was like, you know, our material. And I would go on the road, you know, like a weekend a month. Like, I'll go out and, and, and do some shows. Um, I'll, you know, go to in Minneapolis or someplace where I have friends and uh and and perform and, and it was a lot of fun and then and it was just one of those things that 
happen to fall into my lap. Like, you know, do you want to do this? And then we'll try to sell it. And, you know, I got a call last night, a friend of mine, uh, like I'm doing these shows at the South by Southwest festival. And, uh, I had a fallout. Um, can you come down now? That would be a great opportunity to go and be at the South by Southwest festival. But, uh, well, I'm emceeing my daughter's school's fundraising gala. And then her birthday party is Saturday. So, no. <laughs> I, I have more important things to do. I have to string up a pinata and, you know, decorate a sheet cake. I, I want to ask you about th- that part. It's something that you, uh, that you mentioned briefly there, which is that, you know, you came of age as a comedian in that context where, you know... As we said, you as you've said, you had the uh, all the rights of an adult, but none of the responsibilities. Yeah. Um, now you now I have all the responsibilities, none of the rights. Now, yeah, exactly. So now now you're a grown up um, with a family and a career that isn't doing stand up comedy. So what's different for you as a stand up comedian now? You can talk about those of those things. I mean, that, that, that is why doing stand up is exciting because you have a different, again, it's different. You know, it's a different prism. I, I talk to people that say like, you know, what if I have kids? Will it ruin my act? <laughs> Listen to yourself, you know, how just can, like it ruined Ray Romano's yeah, act. Yeah, or Richard Pryor's act. Like <laughs> Louis C.K. Yeah. Anything that drags you deeper into the world and, and get, you know, is going to help is going to help you out and it just gives you it opens you up to an entirely different world and i know people my age that you know that, like, that are still aren't married and, and and don't have children and it it's like you know it's like it's a completely different life but what you realize is that it doesn't destroy who you are <laughs> we do have children i have two uh, i have two daughters um they're five and four right now so at this age i might as well have apes <laughs> They behave about as well as apes. But uh, my daughters are adopted. They're from China. And um, when we told a friend of ours we were adopting girls from China, she said, uh, are you going to teach them English? (laughs) And I said, yeah. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Somebody says something dumb. And you calculate how long it will take to explain and to argue and decide instead to just agree with them and then treat yourself to an ice cream sandwich. (laughs) It makes life so much easier. Well, you know who caused 9-11? The gays. You're right. Man, I love ice cream sandwiches. You know, I do consider myself the sort of like alt comic, but I have very mainstream, you know, I carpool kids to school and, you know, but you, you can still be that person and you just, you you grow old with your audience, I think. Well, Dana, thank I, you so much for... No, uh, I want to talk more. Take, See, the thing is... <laughs> I, uh, now that our now that our audience is uh, 45 minutes older, thank you for <laughs> thank you so much for being on the Sound of Young America. It was great to have you. Thank you. Can I, I'll like set off uh, NPR wise. Yeah, go for it. Thank you. Excellent. It was public radio international wise, but that's fine. Say, it's just but isn't it all the same? That's the Terry Gross sign off. <laughs> thank you. 
Dana Gould's uh, brand new uh, special, which is available on the, your uh, Showtime televisions on compact disc and on digital versatile disc uh, video format, is Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. Don't let the parenting fool you. It's filthy. Before we go, here's one more bit from Dana Gould's CD. Different people have, you know, different weird phobias. Like, I am terrified that I will get stuck in an elevator and have to poop. (laughs) That fear rules my world. I have walked up miles of stairs with the knowledge that I have a grilled cheese from seven hours ago, locked and loaded. And I will never go into an elevator in a parking garage, ever. Because if that elevator gets stuck, you know who hears your screams? Nobody. And a couple of months later, they go, hey, what's wrong with that elevator? And they pry open the doors, and there's a skeleton, and it pooped, and it's me. <laughs> That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. Ah, the show edited by Nick White, our intern, Brian Fernandez. By the way, we're going to be in Portland and Seattle for the Monsters of Podcasting and the Sound of Young America Live. For more information about our shows, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Live. Or for Portland information, visit BridgetownComedyFestival.com. We're part of a huge and really fantastic comedy festival up in Portland. So I hope we'll see you there, Pacific Northwest. Either way, we'll see you next time right here on the Sound of Young America.